Welcome along to Red Star Radio. As a great man once said, if you're not voting for me, then you ain't black. And who can also forget the inspiring words of the first black president, Bill Clinton, who played saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show in 1992 and thus solved racism for his generation. Now, that might seem like I'm joking with uh, citing uh, two white guys declaring that they knew who or what was black or being declared to be black, but that's not actually too far away from the rather ludicrous uh, topic we're going to be discussing today, which is the topic of critical race theory. And Layla, was Joe Biden onto something when he was declaring who was and who wasn't black based on voting patterns? Um, Well, I think he was because I thought this was a meme, but it seems like it's a serious theory. And um, Biden's conclusion absolutely does fit within critical race theory, actually. So he was that was a proper application of the theory. (laughs) Wow. So we're saying Tucker Carlson is right. Um, I would, it, 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 is, it is an administration guided by a critical race theory. God damn. Well, I don't think that they're consciously guided by critical race theory. They're co- not consciously guided by anything. They're just guided by the imperatives of the market. But so is critical race theory. Very much a um, result of decaying monopoly capitalism and therefore the forces of the market. Um, so, I, But I wouldn't say Tucker was completely correct either, though. I'm not gonna. <laughs> no, that 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 was satirical. We're n- we're not trying to get our own spot on Fox News. Yeah, we're not trying to. Grow- <laughs> Although maybe we should say Tucker was right. I think that might be a good venue for growth for us. <laughs> yeah, that's if we could get on Tucker. If you're listening, we will go on that sort of weird log cabin program that you have in the day and uh, <laughs> and, and and delight your audience by uh, denouncing critical race theory. In solid materialist terms. Mm, well, I absolutely would denounce critical race theory, though. I, I agree with Tucker on that. I, I do denounce it. As we'll go through. So. We'll explain why. As we'll go through. <laughs> we, will, we will now explain. And so, critical race theory um, really starts to re- achieve, I would say, public prominence within within the last 18 months, though the origins of it have been of course floating around for considerably longer in the intellectual atmosphere so let's start off with the basics then uh where does it actually originate from and how did it reach this point um well yeah so um critical race theory has two i guess two roots that you could point back to it number one is a movement And number two, it's a theory. So the the theoretical underpinnings go a lot further. You could probably trace it all the way back to the advent of postmodernism, without which critical race theory would not be able to exist. Um, So just to simplify, though, the theory kind of goes back to um, the also dates back to some legal, some critical legal studies theorists. who were trying to figure out why, after the civil rights movement ended, um, ended the uh, legal inequality of rights between different races, um, why the civil rights movement that did not end um, racial disparities and racism. And so CRT as a theory emerged from there. As a movement, quite hilariously, it seems to uh, date back to a critical legal studies 
uh, conference. At the 1986 conference, the participants were asked, quote, what is it about the whiteness of critical legal studies that discourages participation by people of color? So you can see right there at this um, this uh, origination um, event, <laughs> like kind of the contours of what we see today, like so much of this stuff still happens and it's gotten even worse. Um, so uh, the theorists kind of, so people often um, uh, accuse critical race theorists of being Marxists. And in a way they are, because in seeking to explain why the civil rights movement did not end racial disparities and racism, they do actually reach back into Marxism, but in a postmodern method. So you could actually trace their whole thing back to Max Horkheimer, who's, a, of course, part of the um, uh, the Frankfurt. Yes, exactly. The front, the Frankfurt School. Um, but their Marxism in, in their in, in their understanding of Marxism they sub race for class. And so they see the world divided into oppressed and oppressors, um, somewhat like Marxists do, but we see it according to class, but they see it according to race. And so in their mind, we need to spread race consciousness and trigger a revolution in race relations in order to um, remove the oppression. Um, some of the key theorists that you may have heard there's like a lot of different ones that are a bit more obscure, a bit more academic, but some of the key theorists in both that were both um, theorists as well as part of the movement um, include Kimberly Crenshaw. She originated, she's a legal theorist who originated the concept of intersectionality. Abram X. Kendi, more of a contemporary thinker um, who's who's been in the news a lot with the BLM stuff that happened last summer. Robin D'Angelo, of course, she wrote White Fragility, and uh, I made a lot of money off that. And I think kind of like the maybe intellectual academic forefather was Max Horkheimer, but I wouldn't say he's a critical race theorist himself. Well, I'd throw in Mark Huser as well, just because he was one, if not the first, he was certainly an influential figure in his early to middle 60s writings of substituting out the proletariat in the USA entirely and replacing it as the revolutionary subject with what he called the various oppressed groups, which included obviously the black population, other racial minorities and the lumpen proletariat as well. And for that, he was rightly criticized by a lot of Marxists at the time. But that sort of Frankfurt School, uh, what I would call bastardized, non, non, it's non-Marxism really, because it removes the working class as the revolutionary subject. Um, that form of sub-Marxist academia uh, bleeds through into all of the theorists who are sort of populating the, the media and academic landscape today. Mm -hmm. I've heard it. I've heard critical race theory be described as um, a conscious attempt to merge identity politics with postmodern philosophy, which is what Kimberly Crenshaw actually tries to do explicitly. She says, like, quote, she says that um, in her work on intersectionality. Um, so it's taking out the worst parts of late stage capitalism and putting them together. With some more worst parts of it. So, <laughs> yeah. and unlike in mathematics, uh, two negatives don't end up making a positive. Yeah, like this is a, this is, I don't know, I don't know what the word is for like horrible destructive synthesis, but this is what critical race theory is. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's a vortex of bullshit, basically. Yes. All right, so maybe we can move on to talk about what critical race theory actually is because um, it kind of exists in the ether. And we kind of hear like whispers of different concepts filtering through our everyday experience, especially if you're a professional, especially if you're um, in the petty bourgeoisie or, you know, even if you are a part of the, like you went through the educational system past high school or even in high school, um, you must have heard of some of the concepts that they talk about, but like white privilege and things like that. Um, so maybe we can talk about just briefly what exactly race critical, uh, sorry, r- critical race theory is. Um, so it seeks to understand. So it, it, as I mentioned, it's seeking to understand why racism, racial disparities continue to persist uh, past the supposed um um, a victory of the civil rights movement, according to them, right? And um, so they find the answer not in the fact that it's a problem of of a lack of civil rights, right? So, so the problem the civil rights movement was trying to solve was creating equal rights for everyone, regardless of race. That was the goal which they achieved, right? Like so now. There is, there has been the formal equalization of rights between white and black people, so-called white and black people. Um, but they find the problem is actually not with a lack of civil rights for any group of people, but the civil rights themselves. So they find that the civil, the rights that the civil rights movements was trying to promote produces racism in and of themselves, and so namely they're extremely critical of some of the core tenets that the civil rights movement um, was, had, which is a color blindness, which says that equal laws should be available for all, and racial integration, wherein you know people of different racial backgrounds should come together in politics and society at large. And so they're critical of color blindness because they say that um, when you have a hierarchy between different races and you promote the idea of color blindness in any field of politics and of society, it just tacitly advantages the hierarchically dominant race, right? And so you need to have race-specific laws in order to rectify the existing hierarchy that exists. So a good example would be affirmative action, for instance. Um, And then racial integration, they have an issue with for the same kind of reason that in a hierarchy, in an exist, in a situation where you have an existing hierarchy between different races, uh, an effort of racial integration will mean that um, a minority group is uh, disadvantaged under a majority group and kind of erased by it. Um, So kind of a good critique that I read in an overview by Sam Chris was that like a critique of busing where critique he cites from Derek Bell, who is one of the writers of the found, one of the founda- foundational texts of critical race theory called Serving Two Masters. So um, Derek Bell argues that desegregated school is not necessarily better for black students because after you desegregated the schools, black students were often bused to like poor and violent white districts. So they were just bused to the worst districts. And at this, and while at the same time, like black students in white majority schools um, 
would find themselves doing less well academically and targeted by teachers and their white classmates. So while like the desegregation on its face seems like a good kind of like um, effort towards uh, equal rights and equal treatment, it actually results in unequal treatment because of the existing hierarchies between quote unquote white and black people. I'm saying quote unquote because I, I'm, as I'm going to go through, I don't think race is real and I, I really don't like having to use these words, but I have to in order to be clear. So let's pause there for a moment just to look at the the fact that they, the critical race theorists reject the um, universalism yes exactly basically they reject the universalism that um the civil rights movement of the uh, from the really from the 20s to the 60s was looking to was looking to win they were looking to win universal rights from the the capitalist state and then critical race theorists reject the idea of universal rights yes exactly so essentially they're critical of liberalism like classical liberalism, like they're, in my opinion, um, they are attacking concepts that come from liberal rights and liberalism overall. They, they think liberalism itself is racist, essentially. Like liberalism itself produces racism. And so the problem is liberalism. It's not a lack of liberalism, which is what the civil rights movement had in mind. Like they wanted to extend civil, civil, liberty, civil liberties and rights to everyone you know, which is a part and parcel of the liberal project overall. Um, and so they find issue with that effort. But the overall aim, and, and Lyndon Johnson was quite open about this when he signed uh, the various pieces of civil rights legislation, was that the, uh, the civil rights should be a process whereby a, uh, a, a black bourgeoisie in the United States is grown and solidified. And to the point where you got a significant uh, number of uh, black people where within the ruling class, therefore, therefore securing the system against some of the potentially more radical elements, and that the the success of that, again, it was a success to a large degree for the people who designed it. Um, of course, doesn't solve uh, the issues facing the majority of. Uh, what is termed African Americans, because most of them remain uh, working class or poor, poorer end of the working class. So it's no, uh, it doesn't seem to be much of a uh, much of a surprise that the uh, the academia comes up with like a, a racialized and postmodern explanation for what is fundamentally a class difference. Uh, yeah, it's it's no surprise for Marxists that like you and I like Marxists of our of our type that believe in like that we 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 see the world divided according to class and that is the main division and antagonism um it should be of no surprise that liberal rights which is a capitalist ideology made to um uh it's an ideology made to support capitalism so it's no surprise that an extension of liberal rights should not resolve inequalities caused by the capitalist mode of production right it i don't think it's to say though that and i would never say this that the civil rights movement was useless or like um made racism worse or something like that 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 these guys say i don't agree with that i think that's ridiculous that would be reactionary It, it is reactionary exactly and 
And so I, I think that the critical race theorists, in my mind, they kind of describe a situation sort of correctly, right? Um, but the problem is that they uh, locate the source of disparities to this fake concept called race, whereas we locate it in a real objective material relation called class. Um, and so you can see uh, how the premise that they base their whole thing on is ridiculous by the kinds of ways they hope to address the issue of what they see as racial disparities, okay? So, for instance, like you hear things like from Abraham X. Kendi, the need to um, create a department of anti-racism. This was in the news a few months ago. Run where- by him. He was quite specific about <laughs> was that. He that. Did he say that? Oh, that's great. Well, he was he was saying that they should be they should hire more, create more departments of anti-racism, and of course bring him in to give okay. seminars. Um, well, uh, this whole thing is seeming more and more obvious to me, but what it really is. But I mean, we'll 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 still uh, we'll still. We'll, yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, the need to, quote, deconstruct institutions of liberal institutions of all kind using race consciousness and unearth hidden racism and then reconstruct them using race consciousness uh, with race consciousness embedded. Um, yeah, I know this postmodern stuff is so grating. I hate postmodern language. Um, anyways, and also well, it's another it's it's bastardized um, it's bastardized Derrida, basically, <laughs> uh, and bast- bastardized Foucault, yes. which who are bad enough on their yeah, own. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also like making you know hate speech illegal against minorities specifically, which is actually something we do here in Canada. So. Like when you locate the issue, basically they are locating the issue in uh, um, the causation of of disparities amongst people to an ideology called race, right? And so the only way to deconstruct an ideology is through ideological efforts, according to them, right? Um, and so that's why these things, uh, they don't gain the effort of questioning the institution's themselves as instruments of of power wielded by a powerful class against a dispowered class right it it comes it, they're not questioning the, the that aspect of it they're just trying to make to to remake these institutions with a, a new and non-racist or anti-racist ideology and they think that will fix the issue um so it's literally the meme of the cruise missile with a rainbow flag on it and Black Lives Matter written on the side. That's the that's the end point. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't think that the 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 solutions they have it's not very well um articulated. It seems like it it, it is kind of a eclectic collection of, of quite obscure quote unquote solutions. Um I mean I don't know what they would think of that specific thing, but um they do some of them do make gestures towards anti-capitalism they they do say like capitalism itself is also racist but um i don't know i just think it's too it's too postmodern to actually have a solid direction um it's more of this like critique and also um it, it, it because it posts it, it 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 places such a 
big emphasis on subjective measures of racism, right? Because now that we've lost the legal structure, like the the explicitly legal divisions that used to reify race, they're gone because of the civil rights movement in the United States. So now you can't really point to a law that specifically says like, you know, black people um, have to live here and because they're they have this heritage. Right. They don't have. So they have to resort to um, a lot of it to, to, to what they call lived experience and other subjective measures to show evidence of what they deem is still structural racism. And um, and so that's why you you kind of have a lot of stuff from like Crenshaw and stuff saying, well, you can't question or even Robin D'Angelo, like you can't question what people of color say because that's evidence of structural racism because it's been invisibilized by the equalization of rights, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, also this, again, this, this reflects the, 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 the postmodern theoretical roots of this thing where if you took like, if you tried to make a politics out of like um, Foucault or Derrida, then that would be just endless examination and re-examination and no actual end point. Yeah. Because that's all that... Um, if you if you look at a work of, like, all the major works of Foucault, um, like uh, Discipline and Punish or um, History of Sexuality, it's an examination of what he terms systems of oppression. And so, so he examines it, and then there's no... Because it's not attached to any real political project... Is just examine it and then you re-examine it again. Or in Derrida's case, you read into a text something, mm-hmm. and then you read further into it, and then you read further into it. It what you end up with politically, if you try and apply that in the political sphere, is an endless churn where you just constantly um, reconstitute the same system over and over again. Mm-hmm. Which is why um, both. Despite their origins, both of them be having their origins politically in the French Communist Party, why uh, Foucault and Derrida both ended up as like icons of um, 80s postmodern capitalist realism, because it was just about endlessly examining um, the self in some cases, or just endlessly recapitulating uh, capitalist institutions, because both of them had gone infinitely far away from their origins as at one time Marxists to just being people who being theorists whose only purpose was to constantly analyze the same thing over and over again analyze the systems of oppression over and over again and in the vague hope that that would lead to some sort of better conclusion but because they specifically rejected the historical role of the proletariat and because they rejected the idea of working class power as oppressive in itself then there was no out there was no exit from this constant circle and that's what critical race theory has reproduced here alex can you explain to me why foucault and the other postmodernist why do they reject the material basis of power because it seems to me like their um understanding of power is something that is just it's everywhere it's action through various means um legal discursive 
Um, but this is a stark difference from the understanding from Marxists, which is power is action through the ownership of the means of production and thereby the ability to withdraw or withhold um, access to resources. Um, do you know why they moved away from that? I, 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 I don't know if you know, but I'm just wondering. Well, be- they, they all are products of the, uh, the questioning of Marxism that occurred after the death of Stalin and after the uh, Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin in 1956. And that produces the process that will, in political terms, will end with like Eurocommunism and the liquidation of the major European communist parties. But it also kicks off a process of um, intellectuals, particularly in France, um, in who were associated with the French Communist Party, uh, re-examining everything about Marxism because the argument that was made by like um, early stages Foucault or like uh, a Derrida would have, would be that the um, that Stalin era Marxism of the French CP had become mechanistic um, that uh, the base superstructure analysis was too simplistic and it was too crude and it wasn't taking into account all the different ways in which capitalism produced and reproduced its domination. And that's also why the theories of like um, Gramsci became appealing to those who were going down that route. Now, from that starting point, the likes of Foucault then go into purely into examinations of the superstructure. Uh, so, like all of his major works are examinations of superstructural, um, superstructural institutions. So, examinations of the prison system, examinations of the nature of sexuality, examinations of uh, the history of mental health and the insane asylum, um, and then you get with Derrida the other direct, the, uh, similar direction, which is that he goes into textual analysis. So purely cultural critique of like or examining uh, the 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 context and the subtext of different writings. So you can so like a Derridian analysis of a piece of text could uh, then would would argue that well the author might have meant this, but what the subtext is actually is this. And you can see how both of those things can lead directly into the forms of thought that are expressed in critical race theory. Now, but its starting point is a rejection of the Marxism of the the old Communist Party uh, Francaise uh, from the fifties, and a rejection of what they saw as the the crudeness of the official Marxism of the the Stalin era, which there's some validity to that. But they then, de- they then, like Marcuse, they completely decenter their analysis from the working class as the as the subjects of political change, and just go off into superstructural and cultural analysis, and therefore completely lose touch with the working class as a revolutionary subject, and in their later years come to completely renounce uh, the idea of a revol- of revolution at all. I mean, Derrida is very specific in specters of Marx that he no longer believes in revolution at all in fact he's very specific in that the only sort of um, Marxism and in inverted commas that he still um, holds is the the idea of Marxism as a uh, a spirit of criticism 
and the only politics he believes in are sort of uh, what you would refer to as uh, basic bitch 90s liberalism. So from the starting point of wanting to do a legitimate critique, they ended up going off in a completely reactionary direction. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, rectify this, Alex. Did I actually answer your question there? No, you did. You did. Uh, you did. It, it just seems to me that they were trying to make a more nuanced critique of power, but then just moved away from the source of power and just forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> like the actual source of power yeah. and then that just got that just got mutated by a bunch of petty bourgeois academics that never had a real job in their life um to to meet yeah. and the cia of course <laughs> who uh were very keen to promote uh derrida and Foucault's yeah i wonder why work. like it uh, i wonder why a um <laughs> they understood <laughs> like, what it was yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, it's it's very convenient for the CIA to promote the idea that power is actually just the words that we say to one another. Amorphous. <laughs> yes, exactly. Amor- and therefore, yeah. completely amorphous uh, rather than located specifically in class relations, uh, therefore giving a target. Therefore, you might as well come and work for the CIA because, hey, we're, we're yeah, we, now. We're, we're addressing our issue of white rage as one of the... Uh, the American yeah. generals said recently. <laughs> why, why not forget white rage and just embrace multicultural imperialist <laughs> rage and bomb other problematic countries? Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, Alex, um, have you ever had to deal with that? Because you are a white male. Listeners, Alex is a white male. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I can no longer hide this. <laughs> this is a reckoning, actually. It's a, it's an intervention. It is. Well, I'm just wondering. Um, have actually, Alex <laughs> probably suffers from more racism at my hands than than he's ever delivered. <laughs> yeah, the 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 vicious Canadian racism, which emanates every 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 time from uh, Layla's well, problematic I do, microphone. I do make a lot of jokes about your accent, so maybe that's a bit mean. I should stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it, it's it's all fair. It's all fair because uh, through our banking system, we still yeah. own Canada. So make your jokes, and then when you're bankrupt, we'll be having the last laugh. It's the little bit of resistance that I can muster as a yes. as a Canadian revolutionary resistance fighter, <laughs> <laughs> making fun of the way you say the word "through" and one, two, three, and things Me, like that. By that, you mean the correct way that I say it. <laughs> It's incorrect. We have the I'm I have the default default accent at this point. Well, closer to no, it's it, not, the American it's one. It's not true. This is just um, we've just loaned the English language to you. We will claim it back. <laughs> well, I mean, anyways, have you ever had to deal with someone telling you to check your privilege or deal with your white rage, things like that? Um, only only ever online. These things very oh, okay. rarely come up in person. Um, okay. The I'm trying to think back to like my days in uh, trade union activist worlds. Generally, um, generally no, because um, because when I was actually involved in uh, the trade union activism and political activism more generally, because I was in a deeply opportunistic uh, Trotskyist group, which threw itself onto the every woke cause going generally we didn't we didn't get called out like that it only started to happen to me when i actually um started being a trad marxist online Mm, mm, okay all right well that's interesting um all right well 
Do you want to maybe talk about, should we start talking about what Marxism says about racism and race? Yeah, uh, race is fake. End of show. (laughs) Race is completely fake. Uh, And I think that a lot of the critical race theorists don't, very few of them will say that there is a, quote, there is a biological basis of race. But this is inherent in their whole line of argument in some way, shape, or form. Like, they're either saying that, some of them actually do say quite directly that there is some kind of biological basis for race. They don't directly say that, but they do kind of imply it with their reasoning. Or they'll say that race is such a powerful ideology that is that has, quote, taken a life of its own. You hear this all the time. Like, race has so taken... So it's faith-based then. Yeah, exactly. Like, no idea has a life of its own. It doesn't matter whether it's old and entrenched or it seems so pervasive. No ideology has a life of its own. It must be support under capitalism and any system actually. It has to be supported through constant creation and recreation. And so it it it, it it's only survives because the ideology has some kind of use with for capitalists in capitalist society. Okay, so it is an ideology. All right, that's it. Like, of so one might say, yes, ideologies are real and they are real, but they're not real in the sense that they can actually explain the world, nor explain people's experiences, um, nor like locate the root of their experiences in that ideology. That's not what ideology functions as um, under capitalism as delivered by capitalists, which race is a hundred percent, a capitalist ideology. It is a bourgeois ideology. Okay. And so from my perspective as a Marxist, I think it's fake. I don't need race to explain the world. The proletariat never needed race to explain the world and explain why, um, they, they suffer from, um, from, um, why they are disempowered and why they suffer from different forms of oppression. We've never needed that. There is a straightforward reason why that happens, and it's because of class and the ownership of the means of production. We don't need race to explain any of that stuff, and we should push against, in my opinion, push against um, the concept of race, which is merely, from its very beginnings, a method of dividing the working class and creating a super exploitable layer um, to generate more profit. That's, that's it. It's that simple. Um, and also the the way in which, like, especially specifically nineteenth century pseudo scientific racism, which emerged really in the middle to late period of the nineteenth century, was also matched by the applications and the uh, uh, the embrace of social Darwinism by the British ruling class with regards to their own working class. So for a long time, like the theories of characters like Herbert Spencer who was noted social Darwinist of the late 19th century and, uh, by the way, also uh, acclaimed as an anarchist theorist by some people as well. Um, d- people like that declared that the, the the working class was literally a different species. Now, why did, why did they do that? It wasn't just because of mad prejudice. It was because this was at a time when the working class were making increasing uh, both industrial and political demands on the system. And the the bourgeoisie or a part of it was looking for ways in which to continue to justify their specific exclusion from even like liberal political rights well one way of doing that is to argue that well of course these people have got to be hyper exploited and um, refuse any political rights because they literally are a, a different species to us the bourgeoisie who can't possibly be expected to handle political rights at all 
Yes. And that they were making this sort of uh, biological racist argument, biological, um, pre- biologically prejudiced argument against giving the working class any rights for a long time. And it's no coincidence that, that was at a time when they were still trying to extort, extract surplus value from the labor of children. So mm. you you argue that the people you're exploiting the most are literally a different species than you. That's not new. That's very, that's as old as uh, property, but, but um, societies divided on the basis of private ownership. And I just want to um, to add to your point too a bit later. But first of all, I just want to say that saying that denying, even if you're denying that race has a genetic component to it, which I think most critical race theories theorists would deny, saying that the idea is so pervasive that therefore a group of people needs to be set apart because of it is just as bad. It's just as bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's just as bad as doing that. So don't give me that bullshit. It's just as bad. All right. Um, I just want to, and to your point about the biological determinism as um, thought up by the English bourgeoisie, you can see it in every form of class society. Every dominant class will invent ideologies to justify what it, why it is that members of the human species should be subjugated and maltreated. Um, like They need to explain it to themselves, but also to those that they are subjugating as a piece of ideology to um, maintain class domination, right? Because of course, class domination in the final analysis is maintained by violence. But that is in the final analysis. And you need much, much more than that to, as the postmodernists, I guess, kind of rightly identified, you need much more than that to maintain class domination. And a huge component of that is ideology, of course, which is why the bourgeoisie puts in so many billions of dollars into ideological production of all kinds, schools, media, you know, uh, political political advertising, like countless things. Academia. Um, Academia, great, another great example. Um, you know, uh, when you look at the, I was reading, uh, the only book you need to read about this and actually just read the fourth chapter is Race Craft, Craft by the, the Field Sisters, which I read many years ago and then I reread the chapter for, for this show. Um, and, they, and they cite an example of how the, some members of the Russian nobility believed that the serfs were s- so much different than themselves, like a, like, a quasi different species than themselves that the serfs had black colored bones versus their bones that were white like they the the ideology is so pervasive that they believe that even though in in that time um of serfdom there was so much violence and they had a lot of opportunities to look at the bones of various kinds of people and find out that all human bones are white colored um so yeah, like these things are, it's not new. Like there's nothing, the, the instantiation of race in the American concept does have a particular um, historical root that I, I'd like to go through briefly. But the reason why it's, it, it exists is the same, is the same, whether you are in, in, uh, in, capitalism, in capitalism or in feudalism or in a slave society. Like the reason for the ideology of race or whatever is the same like it's the same when you go back to aristotle when he he conceives of his notion of a of slavishness of inherent slavishness between for some people he just said he said kind of directly he's like well you know what some people are just slaves some people are just slaves (laughs) 
(laughs) They're just just, meant to be that way. They're just meant to be that way. So that's a very straightforward way of, of, that's a much more straightforward way um, than, you know, inventing this whole ideology around race where you define certain characteristics as racial and then ascribe uh, people with those characteristics to a race, which is actually circular reasoning, by the way. Um, But it's just used to, to... to justify uh, for the dominant class, but mostly for the for the subordinated class, why there is domination to begin with. And I just want to read a great, great quote from the Field Sisters book from Racecraft. Um, quote, probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. Critical race theory falls into the same exact mistake. As if institutions only existed in order to produce and reproduce white supremacy. As if we do not live in a system that is predicated on the cre- increasing exploitation of surplus value from the working class. That is actually the root of our society. It's not <laughs> the need to produce white supremacy. If white supremacy plays a role in our society, it's still to produce um, surplus value, to exploit surplus value from the working class, if it does exist in our society still today. Um, according to critical race theories, it seems to be a, a, a major ideology still today. I would I would disagree. I, it still exists to some degree, but I don't think it's the major ideology. Well, it exists in like very small fringe groups. Like the exactly. the official the official ideology of like most of like Britain, uh, Canada, the United States now is very much embracing of the um, what, what very much embracing of the of the what you would call the woke agenda which includes many aspects of critical race theory have been seamlessly adopted into the official the official messaging of most of the um western major advanced capitalist governments yeah so i want to distinguish between race and racism just as i would between gender and sexism okay because these things do exist, for, like they actually do exist. Like people do suffer from racism still, and people do suffer from sexism still. I think the main differential between Marxist and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, and critical race theory theorists is that we locate the source of these oppressive ideologies not to gender or race, which are both fake, um, but to class, right? Like our we have a proletarian like Marxist ideology explains this reality through a different through a materialist point of view essentially right because all ideologies are are made to explain social relations to some degree right like all ideologies do that including Marxist ideology Um, the question is whether the ideologies actually depict objective reality and empirical reality or do they not and if they do they're Marxist if they don't they're bourgeois yeah, and as we were saying earlier, the reasons for the uh, the the ultimately the stalling of the civil rights movement was because um, the for the it had achieved most of the liberal aims that it set out to do in terms of the actual 
um, institutionalising of many of its demands by Lyndon Johnson. And the, 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 the perceived failure of it was the fact that, of course, the, for the majority of the black population of the United States remained very working class or poor. Mm-hmm. And that was down to, uh, that's, of course, down to material changes and consistency within U.S. capitalism itself. And the fact that a lot of um, uh, black areas got poorer as time went on was because of the wave of deindustrialization and the, uh, the e- profound economic changes that were to occur throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s that left a lot of the American working class, white and black, uh, worse off or in a more precarious situation than they were before. But of course, that's not something that a bunch of bourgeois academics want to really examine, mm. given also the fact that the language of class as a discourse in American political life was stamped out as early as the as early as the 1950s, or even earlier, thanks to the wave of repression ushered in after World War II. And so the idea of class-based politics even was something that was a, a tiny minority pursuit in American society. So uh, hence the fact that so much of what came out of the 60s radicalism was profoundly racialized. And the fact that American class politics remained very limited or dead for a long time meant that the only discourse that survived was the racialized discourse because that could easily be suited to the needs of capital and still can be suited to the needs of capital. Even if, uh, and the field, the field sisters go into this in the, the chapter I was reading, uh, chapter four, as you said, the, the fact that racialized ideology is produced and reproduced every generation for, for where, where, given the whims of capital, the needs of capital for, for that ideology to continue. Uh, can be demonstrated even by the fact that it's used to try and stamp it's always been used to try and stamp out any even the most anemic form of working class politics has to be stamped out and racial ideology including critical race theory Mm -hmm. is an excellent way of actually doing that look at how they um, deployed racialized politics against even something as weak and pathetic as the Sanders campaign how many times did you hear that uh, oh it's racist even this most basic barely even trade union set of demands that like the sanders campaign of 2016 was putting forward how often was that tarred as racist and it was deliberate this is deployed in a deliberate way to stop even the most rudimentary forms of class-based politics and class solidarity actually emerging so in this sense critical race theory is serving the exact same purpose as all forms of the racial ideologies that the American ruling class has made pervasive within its public sphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about, maybe more briefly than I have in the notes here, but um, the the origin of race in the United States? Um, Well, it was invented by Ibrahim X. Kendi. No. Um, joking well the the actual origin of it, it it if you break if you go into the actual the the actual history it's really quite straightforward which is that the <laughs> yes. well it is yes um right. which is that they 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 came up with the racialized categories 
and different characters to explain and to justify um, forms of hyper exploitation in largely um, early American agriculture. And they bring in large numbers of indentured, well, uh, ch uh, chattel slaves into American agriculture because the when they the, to get to render a profit from early agriculture in the United States or the or the uh, British run uh, United States pre 1776 took a uh, a really brutal hyper exploitation of labor that they after various rebellions in the 17th century they couldn't get away with doing that to um to British settlers anymore and so what they needed was a more uh, malleable beaten down um, more hyper exploitable form of labor and that came in the form of slaves purchased either brought in through the West Indies or bought from uh, various warlords on the African coast because they were ripped out of their uh, home context taken thousands of miles away from any um, system of solidarity that they could have had available to them and tossed into this completely alien environment they were much more able to be hyper exploited than the the british um formerly indentured servants and so when they when they created that economic reality of creating that class of worker who uh didn't who would could be hyper exploited they then needed basically a a legal and a ideological practice to justify it and to keep it in place and therefore the forms of um, racial fear racial theories take root via the material need for early american agriculture for a hyper exploitable layer that can be uh, exploited in a li almost limitless and brutal fashion and whom of course you can claim the offspring of via um by basically making them the, the them and their offspring property in perpetuity so it grows from a material need for a hyper exploitable workforce to render um agriculture in the early americas more profitable mm -hmm. yeah and so just a few words about this first group of hyper exploitable labor that was originally indentured uh, servants brought over either forced to migrate like, for instance, criminals were forced to to migrate to the colonies um, in the 1600s and earlier from the UK, from Britain, um, and also voluntary migration, because as enclo enclosures um, uh, proceeded, so the enclosure movement, which um, removed commonly held land, commonly held by the peasants, or commonly accessed by the peasants, uh, enclosed that and made it to private property, which is, of course, the which was the the primitive accumulation that originated capitalism. Um, peasants were thrown off the land and into wage labor, and sometimes they just didn't have jobs available to them. And at the time, there was brutal punishments for not working, whether it was because you didn't want to work or because you you could not work because you couldn't find a job or whatever. Um, you were brutally uh, punished for that. So a lot of them just left um, as indentured servants. Um, and so they would serve a term of seven years, 10 years, and then they would be freed and given their freedom dues. So they would be given land in, in, in the in the new world. And so these indentured slaves were treated, uh, sorry, indentured servants, I'm going to mix up slaves because they were treated just as badly as 
um, African slaves were in a lot of instances. So one of the, uh, an anecdote that the, the Field sisters share in, in their book um, is of an indentured slave in Virginia who, quote, for expressing opinions unfavorable to the governor and the governing council, um, one man had both his arms broken and his tongue bored through with an awl, while another lost his ear and had to submit to a second seven-year term of servitude to a member of the council that had judged his case. So neither white skin nor English nationality protected servants from the grossest forms of brutality and exploitation. The only degradation they were spared was perpetual enslavement, along with their issue in perpetuity, the fate that was eventually befallen, um, that eventually befell the descendants of Africans. So the reason why they didn't uh, suffer the fate that the Africans did is because these indentured servants had come from a, their own history of class struggle with the new American ruling class that they had struggled with from Britain, right? So there, there was a history of class struggle between the peasants and the lords. Many different uprisings and, you know, lower levels of, of class struggle, like refusing to do certain kinds of jobs or certain kind of tasks. Like, for instance, you can look back into... Um, documents from um from like uh that that depict the relations between lords and servants sorry between between peasants and lords and you can see for instance situations where the lord is like well you have to bring the hay to the manor and then the peasants don't do it because what because they say well you didn't specify that we have to put the hay into the into the um into the wagon first and so we weren't able to bring it to the manor because that wasn't part of the job description you know so like there was this this like uh, class struggle that had gone on for for centuries and they had been able to build up um through custom and or through formalized law some kind of form of of rights and obligations and so they, they had expectations that they could, that these indentured servants could not, that protected them, expectations both from their lords, uh, from the ruling class and the new ruling class in America, and also from the part of the indentured servants, that would not allow all of them to be treated like slaves en masse, okay? And so that is what kind of forestalled the... Um, the, the the effort of the ruling like they would definitely have done it enslaved the indentured servants entirely if they could have but they couldn't partially for that reason also partially because the, the indentured servants that came to america were well armed they out and they outnumbered the masters and also there was this the element of the uh, native americans that because they were resentful for being pushed off of their land through settler col colonialism um they would very quickly take advantage of any resulting warfare between the lords and the masters. So they wanted to forestall that as much as possible. There was also an element of the fact that the indentured servants did look like the masters and they look like the society at large. So they, they had, you know, they had like the same colored skin. So if they did escape from slavery, um, they could just blend in with the rest of the society and they would never be found. Right. So that doesn't really make for a um, um, a slave type situation to emerge from these groups of people. So it's nothing to do, like there's a historical reason why um, the, the new American ruling class could not enslave their English indentured servant counterparts. It's a, a long historical um, process which, which for, forestalled that. It's not because of race, 
Okay, there's the race doesn't come into this for there. Slavery in, in America happened for like 100 years without race ever having been mentioned. The, the laws used to just um, the, the initial laws around slavery used to just refer to free men and women and enslaved men and women. Race became more and more of an issue as the American Revolution started coming closer and closer and notions of natural rights and um, natural rights to liberty and things like that came into the forefront. This was the this was the dominant ideology that the um, American revolutionaries against the uh, British Empire were using to justify their revolt. And so there's a contradiction there. You have a society that is largely based on slave labor, but you have these concepts of absolute um, equality as well. So race comes into the picture to resolve this contradiction. Because now you have something called a race, which explains why some people can rightly be denied their natural rights to liberty and freedom, and why some people have it. And so the contradiction could have also been resolved by um, the abolition of slavery. So you see this in the Haitian Revolution, which is a great, awesome revolution, um, where you know the, the, the Haitian slaves there were seeing what was happening with the French Revolution, and the rights of men ideology coming out of there. And they were like, okay, well, we just want our natural rights. Like, we don't, you know, they didn't accept the concept of race. They didn't accept that concept. They're like, no, we, we're human beings. We deserve natural rights too. We, we're going to get them. And they had the Haitian Revolution, which was successful. The, the only successful slave revolt revolution in, in the history of mankind, as far as I know. Um, and so it could have been resolved in that way through the abolition of slavery, but instead it was resolved with the creation, the invention of race. So it was invented as a specific time period that you can point to, right? It's not this everlasting concept. It, race was not, didn't exist in a lot of different um, class societies. Like, so for instance, in the Roman Empire, the Roman uh, ruling class didn't have a concept of race for themselves, right? It was according to whether you are a Roman citizen or not, or a slave or not. So if you were a Roman citizen and you had differently colored, you had different attributes, it was fine. No one cared. It wasn't a thing. Like it, it wasn't a race wasn't a concept. Um, they had, you know, somewhat a concept of like nationalities, like Greeks versus Romans, for instance. But race, like pointing at someone as a quote unquote black person did not exist. That was not something that that occurred to them because they didn't need it. They had their own ideology to that that um, that function to maintain domination over there, which was just the concept of like a natural slave from Aristotle, for instance. Yeah. Anyways, so fake, so annoying. So fake and yet so pervasive. But it, the key thing to remember from all of this is that the the concept of race grows out of the need for an, a hyper-exploitable labour force and then later on the need to codify what that is inside the founding documents of the United States and, and which produced disputes over rights of man doctrines, etc., and also over like property rights within the United States. So this is a this is a doctrine which is rooted around hyper exploitation, property rights, and the the need to define those in law a lot of the time. So and a failure to understand that and the t the teaching of junk history, which has been done for a long time about the pre-revolutionary and the immediate post-revolutionary period in the United States leads to stupid shit like the 1619 project which is again 
is a fake version of history and also leads to a misunderstanding of the role that um, slavery was playing in the early United States and the reasons behind the Civil War, given that the 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 maintenance of the uh, the agricultural based economy in the southern United States was threatened by the development of the hyper development of uh, capitalist industry in the North and the subsidies they were trying to put on British products, which then the British would then respond with subsidies on southern cotton. So you end up with this tariff war between the northern and southern ruling classes in the United States for. Uh, 60 odd years before the civil war breaks out including like leading to outbreaks of uh, near uh, violence and near civil war in various periods leading up to it and then two decades of political paralysis leading up to it so all of this is the background to the racial ideologies that are created and recreated inside the united states and that's the real history not the whatever strange idealism that the critical race theorists or the 1619 project people are putting out there. And by the way, um, you would not see the New York Times giving a whole project over to a Marxist view of history, you know, like they did with 1619. No one in the New York Times has rung me or Layla to offer us a project about uh, putting forward the Marxist view on the history of the United States. They're not doing that. We're not getting those calls. Maybe we should get an agent. I don't know. But the the fact is that the, the ruling class publications don't give space to things which are a threat to them. They give space to ideas and concepts which uh, are going to help whether consciously, whether consciously or not, the ruling class both create and recreate their ideologies. This leads very nicely into a discussion of why this bozo theory called critical race theory is arising in this current moment in history. Is the bourgeoisie okay? <laughs> this is a wellness check. <laughs> this is the we we're, we're doing an intervention with the American bourgeoisie. We think they may be unwell. This theory is so stupid. And so flimsy and so based on something so fucking fake that I, I struggle to understand how it's taken seriously by anyone with a brain, um, but also why it's so widespread and apparently now being introduced into, well, I mean, has been introduced certainly into university curricula. I had to suffer through reading some stuff from, from this theoretical pool of work. Um, of course, there was the the the... The school board meeting in Virginia where a bunch of hundreds of parents and community members um, broke out in a very heated um, argument to denounce the introduction of critical race theory in the school school's curriculum. So, you know, whether the school board is actually doing this or not, um, I mean, obviously it's become an issue of contention within popular culture now. So, Alex, why do you think that is? Why now? Well, first, first of all, as we've chronicle that in this show when we were discussing the covid uh, mass uh, hallucination uh, or mass psychosis uh, the american capitalist system is in a state of decay and has been for quite some time it's we're now entering into a period of advanced decay where they're so the system's so far gone they've got a demented guy as president and everybody's got to pretend that that's not the case um but what does a decaying system produce fundamentally? It produces a series of irrational outbursts, um, as we've argued repeatedly, COVID was one. 
And CRT appearing at this moment is, again, a, pro a product of, an of a system undergoing a series of irrational uh, convulsions based upon its decay. And one of the reasons why it's appearing now is because the American capitalist system is in a deep crisis. It is going to go into a deep recessionary crisis at some point soon. Uh, could be sooner or could be next year. Not sure of the precise time. But when that does happen, the, the American ruling class is going to do what every ruling class will do. It will seek to make up the difference by uh, increasing the rate of exploitation of the American working class. And to do that, you need to continue the project that the American ruling class has been engaged in ever since the foundation of America, which was the attempt to uh, stamp out and make sure that true class unity amongst the American workers does not break out, and that the sort of generalized consciousness, generalized class consciousness that even might make up like a basic trade union politics does not reoccur in the same way that it did in the time in which labor was advancing in the United States in the early to middle part of the 20th century. And for that, critical race theory is great, because uh, what it does is it creates rather than uh, arguments breaking out into the public sphere about um, class-based inequalities or exploitation or the immense hoarding of wealth by the American ruling class, what you get is a publicly debate dominated by what Layla's just talked about, which is arguments about white privilege, which is empty and useless. Arguments about, um, you know, whether t two people living next door to each other in the same area who are equally uh, dis equally economically disadvantaged or in the same in the same class position who's got the greater privilege historically speaking um, the ruling class loves to have those loves for those arguments to break out en masse it's a great way of dividing the working class it's a great way of reproducing racial ideology and then the opposite side of this that spins off when a bunch of white uh, dumb white guys say okay well we're you know what we're going to start a white consciousness movement well the ruling class is just fine with that as well because what they've done is they've successfully recreated a new form of racial ideology that they've used to maintain their domination for well for hundreds of years and also i would say secondarily to this but very important as well is the confused nature of um or the the inability of the american bourgeoisie now to actually find themselves a unifying national um project a unifying national um belief system and what i mean by that is like there are periods in the history of capitalism where the bourgeoisie has been able to constitute itself as truly as appearing to be at least the leaders of the nation in the in the case of my country britain um, there's a reason why bourgeois propaganda is always going back to World War II. And it's because that's the last time that the British bourgeoisie were able to represent themselves as the leaders of the nation as a whole. After that, pretty much no chance that they've been able to do that. And even that itself is based on a myth. But it's a popular myth, so they keep going back to it. The American bourgeoisie now, on one hand some of them do see the fact that their position is going to be threatened by the development of Chinese capitalism. And they have some impulses to do something about that, but they can't find a way to actually 
build this. There's, uh, they can't find a way to stop the rise of China because they can't disentangle American capitalism from Chinese capitalism now, or at least there's no real will to do so. Uh, they can't find um, a renewed form of American bourgeois nationalism. The Bush administration years tried to do that using 9-11 as their springboard, but that didn't really last very long and it was pretty weak. In many respects, American bourgeois nationalism hasn't even really recovered from the, the rebellion that caused the Vietnam War army to collapse and Nixon to have to do away with conscription. Um, trying to find this unified national um, binding uh, project to uh, unite the nation behind them in their rivalry with the Chinese bourgeoisie. Well, they can't even unite the, the American bourgeoisie around rivalry with China, given the immense amount of capitalist interests that exist inside China and, are all, and stem from their origin inside the United States. So as a consequence of this confused and divided picture, and then you throw into the mix a random element like Trump, you get a faction of the American bourgeoisie then preparing for the next crisis simply by adopting something like the ideas of critical race theory because they can't agree on they can't agree amongst themselves on the unified external threat but they can agree on that they're going to need to hyper exploit the working class they can agree on that so that's why this gets promoted and also it's equally dumb opposition gets promoted where you get like Ron DeSantis trying to ban it um, various other people saying they're going to ban critical race theory and trying to counterpose their own rather weak versions of like American nationalism to it. So the roots of this line, the contradictions of decaying American uh, state monopoly capital and the inability of the bourgeoisie to reconstitute itself in any way as the leaders of the nation and therefore the only thing they can agree upon is the need for something which is going to help them hyper-exploit the American working class in the near future. Mm, yes. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember too that like nationalism is also a bourgeois ideology and um, it was progressive at a certain point in history because it um, enabled the bourgeoisie to bring together the landless peasants and the proletariat mainly with themselves to overthrow the aristocracy, which was a far more oppressive class and move forward history. And so that's why nationalism was a progressive ideology for a certain at a certain time. Um, this is no longer the case under imperialism. Um, the the right of a nation is transformed into the right of finance capital to use a nation um, and its military might, and it's, of course, its proletariat to uh, dominate other nations. So that is the right of self-determination under imperialism. So while um, we're both opposed to race and anything based on race as an ideology, um, the nationalism isn't an answer either. Like trying to regenerate this... Jingoistic form of American national pride is not the answer either, I would say. Um, and also the bourgeoisie can't do it anymore because um, they, they can't move history forward anymore. And so they need to resort to these like antiquated, antiquated forms of nationalism, which don't really make sense in today's world. And that's why I think that DeSantis's gestures towards, you know, recreating the American nation based on like, I don't know, 
Like you see a lot of them based on like traditional values, for instance, like people just want to have kids and like they just want, you know, they just want enough money to have a little house and whatever, like these kinds of things like don't they ring. So like, I mean, I think they do obviously appeal to a lot of people to a certain extent, but it's just it's it's it, it is kind of this throwback to an earlier time. Yeah. And it, it's not it's not. um and it's because, like, that's all the bourgeoisie can do at this point. And I think CRT as um, an ideology is, is as well just a throwback to an earlier Amer- uh, an earlier time in American um, capitalism, a genuinely progressive time where they did deal with race and racism in a progressive in a progressive way f- for that time, which was to uh, ensure l- the you know actual liberal rights for all people. That was undoubtedly progressive. And anyone who says that there hasn't been any progress or whatever since the civil rights movement is a quack. Like, that's completely untrue. But it, it, capitalism can only solve these kinds of issues to a certain extent. And it, it hits a wall. And that's why you have a persistence of, of yeah, poverty and deprivation, um, which, you know... Um, it's just due to the fact that we have a class society that will create and recreate um, deprivation uh, because it needs to. So um, that is, so CRT is also this, this, this like, they're like, it's like the bourgeoisie saying, okay, okay, we have to, we have to solve racism. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's like trying to fight old battles. That replay the hits. The bourgeoisie, exactly. Replay the hits. As, uh, but they've already solved it as much as they can. They've extended liberal rights to everyone. That is literally the extent of what capitalists can do. Like that was their progressive role in history. Liberal rights was and also, um, you know, yeah, like like uh, creating like this this uh, socialized form of, of of production was also extremely progressive. Like uh, there's a lot of progressive things about capitalism. It's not just that. But liberal rights was a major component of that. Extending liberal rights to all, which um, which is, is very important for the proletariat as a tool to fight for and win power. It really helps them. Like, and you can see the difficulties that Lenin had, for instance, in the absence of, of a, a liberal regime, regime in his situation, for instance, or the Japanese proletariat, which I've mentioned a lot of times. Um, so I, I don't, I think also conversely, conversely though, I'm so disgusted by this thing that comes out of critical race theories, like this thing where people should be ashamed of where they're from or they should they should feel like bad about being something like being a certain quote unquote race. I'm completely opposed to that too. Like, but I, I, I won't be able to, we wouldn't be able to have what I would think is an appropriate way of teaching children about their heritage. And um, because it's not possible under capitalism, like whether you're doing it through critical race theory or whether you're doing it through nationalism, actually, your proletarian children are being taught primarily in schools. What they're being taught is to obey, um, obey their superiors, to um, don't think too much about what's going on. So diminish their critical thinking skills, diminish their the natural ambition that emerges from the proletariat um, and um, also to to uh, suppress uh, the the more ambitious and brighter kids. So either either um, either funnel them into the professional class as much as the, the capitalists can and need, or to just completely you know suppress them by punishing them for being 
different and exceptional, you know? So the, I think CRT in my mind is just another way of doing that to proletarian children. It, but nationalism also does that. It, it, so it, it, these, these two, in my opinion, it's two sides to the same coin. A coin. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I it's think basically, it's, it's American capitalism eating itself in a period of decay. Both yes. of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think if I could create a curriculum um, for children, I mean, I would teach them the reality of class society and how um, the proletariat needs to come together as a class and overthrow the ruling class in the United States of America and then support other working class movements throughout the world so that we can go to the to the to, we can start human history in the next stage and the stage where we start real human history called communism. Like that's what I would teach kids. <laughs> But, um, yeah, you can't do that. The Department for Education is not calling us with the, for that idea. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, there's just so many problems with the education system. I don't even know where to start. Like, it diminishes creativity. It, 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 it you know, it, and it, it starts this competitive framework, like, right when kids are so small. Like, this idea that they have to compete for grades against one another. Um, you know, it... It's 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 very like it's too in my opinion schooling is too it's too structured like it, I think people have different interests and I think children should be allowed to ex given some measure of um, freedom to explore the interests that they have so if they're really into math or really into reading or whatever it might be they should be allowed to explore that to a certain extent like I do think that there should be a standard curriculum for, for and under communism there there would be there must be um, the, the, every citizen would have to be. Um, equipped with a certain set of skills uh, like critical thinking and that's another thing it does it diminishes critical thinking to a degree which is shocking um, and it does this on purpose um, anyways uh, I don't want to maybe schooling should be another podcast but um, yeah what do you think Alex oh, okay I want to ask you something like do you think though that nationalism is preferable to CRT like would you prefer to see that kind of stuff back in schools or more in schools <laughs> Well, Jesus. Um, if if I if I gun to my head, I think that like at the very least, like uh, a re a recreated bourgeois nationalism would actually give you a clear and identifiable opponent. Yeah, ra, ra, that would be the bourgeoisie wearing a more openly aggressive face. This passive aggressive bullshit that like CRT engages in, which is basically like trying to get everybody to engage in some sort of group therapy where they uh, do a self-hatred circle that's even worse because that's like the amorphous um dishonest face of power that the um the, the postmodern state institutions have been trying to wear for quite a long time and that's more difficult to actually oppose in some ways than, you know, some guy waving a union jack in your face and screaming, God save the queen. At least that power dynamic's more clear. But I wanted also just to mention that the, the attempt by some Marxists, both in Britain but mostly in the United States, to incorporate the aspects of critical race theory and somehow wrap it around Marxism yet again... Um, is a truly, truly pathetic and an opportunist endeavour. And this is something which cannot be, these people cannot be denounced enough for the opportunists that they are. They are 
taking a bad idea which was already an abandonment of marxism because of its drawing from like um uh marcuse's bullshit Foucault's bullshit and Derrida's bullshit and then trying to recreate it again within the context of 21st century America and what these people are doing is a form of like bastardized mutilated Maoism where they've also with a barely digested piece of uh, knowledge from that wretched book Settlers which we'll deal with in a future episode and what they're doing is basically just recreating like hysterical liberal forms of uh, critical race theory but they'll attack on a bit about capitalism being the real racism or something like that these people are not marxists these people are not communists these people are basically historical reenactors who have got a beret fixation and think they're all in the black panthers they're not these people they are fools and they're going to lead everybody, anybody who pays attention to them, they're going to lead them nowhere except voting for Kamala Harris in a few years' time. Mm. Well, I, I think they're way worse than the Black Panthers. They're not, not comparable. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's why I said recreationist. They're like a sort of, they're a bad photocopy of the Black Panthers. I'm going to finish off with one of my favorite quotes of all time from the legendary organizer Fred Hampton who was killed by the Chicago police, murdered by the Chicago police at the age of 21 while sleeping beside his eight months pregnant fiance. Completely outrageous. So at he the said, instigation and direct orders of the FBI, by the way. More and more outrageous. <laughs> so he said, we don't think you fight fire with fire best. We think you fight fire with water best. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We say we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. We're going to fight their reactions with all, with all of our people getting together and having an international proletarian revol revolution. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is the correct orientation, the only correct orientation for any self-proclaimed Marxist. All right. It's, pro it's proletarian solidarity or nothing. That's it. Yeah. And that's why Fred Hampton was assassinated and Ibrahim X. Kendi will be an advisor to the Pentagon before the end of the year. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Like, um, there's no, um, even if you're going, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Even if you're going to tell me, and I won't necessarily disagree with you here, that there are problems of racism within the proletariat so some proletarian people are racist against other proletarian people or sexist or whatever okay all right the only way you're going to combat that is through class struggle and through proletarian solidarity and showing people that in fact the proletariat proletarian people have much more in common with one another than they do different and trust me that realization is extremely intuitive and comes out at the lowest level of trade union struggle right away when they realize, when a group of workers realize, maybe there's like some antagonisms in there, when they realize the only way they can get a wage boost from the boss is if they come together and fight the boss, these antagonisms suddenly um, dissipate. And so that's, a, that's why race still needs to be talked about today. That's why all these different things need to be talked about today still, because it serves the purpose of diminishing even that low level of struggle. It serves to diminish that because even that low level of struggle could throw off the shackles 
of bourgeois ideology at that level, like of, uh, at the level of racism and sexism and stuff. It's just so easy. It's not a hard problem to solve in the sense that the solution is quite, you don't need to have like 15 departments of anti-racism and like a thousand struggle sessions at the, in, in some university or whatever. All you need to do is, well, I mean, you just need to bring together the class through, through collective struggle. So if, if, if someone's talking to you about racism and they're not talking to you about that, don't listen to them. Yeah, the the, role, the historic role of the proletariat is to negate race entirely. Yes, and that's the historic that's the historic task, not to recreate it in new ways, but um, in in ways that can be profitable for some dim-witted academic. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, New York Times, if you do want to uh, get in touch, we are willing to go into print with this for a price. Um, so I'm sure that they'll be getting, they'll, they'll be dropping us an email very soon. Um, but why wouldn't they want to buy this? I, I'm not willing to go into print with the New York Times, so don't contact me. Uh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> we've got creative differences already. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not siding with my white male podcast co-host on this endeavor. All right. That's <laughs> fine. Give all the money to me. Yeah, as this usual, as succeeds. usual, an expected This result. is how Britain succeeds. This is white privilege, white privilege at work. <laughs> yeah, we didn't want to have a struggle session during this podcast, but we'll have one soon. Or for Alex, not for me. <laughs> we'll we'll do we'll, we'll perform this dance. If this is where if this is where the money is, get we'll get some of that. We'll get some of that uh, 1619 money. Um Alex, I want you to take off your invisible white privilege backpack. And I want you to take out all the invisible privileges that you have in that backpack and disavow them one by one. Disavow them one by one. No, I'm going to instead sing Rule Britannia in the original German. In the original German. That's good. All right. Anyways, um, good show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everybody. And remember, uh, if anybody's trying to sell you this bullshit, uh, reject it. Reject it. Race is fake. We don't need to think about it anymore. Think about other stuff. Think about class struggle. Think about... Think about class struggle in the truest sense. Think about actual history. Think about actual materialist history and realize that oppression and abuse and slavery isn't reserved for any one group of people except for the dominated class in any given society. So that should be the answer here. Um, and everyone, like, I don't know. The stuff is so, it's so obvious. And the fact that we have to have a whole hour and a half show about it shows how much mystification and propaganda has been delivered to people to make the obvious fact that all men and women are created equal in terms of social rights like, I mean, okay, <laughs> like, under law, right? Under liberal law, like actually, um, that that there there's there's some reason why they shouldn't be. Like, it it, it takes an enormous um, ideological effort to make that a common idea. In fact, it's so common that you find very educated people, scientists and doctors and. And, um, and, and demographic people who specialize in demographics and using race as an actual category to understand studies, to understand like medical phenomenon, for instance, it's absurd. It's absurd. But 
We have a show about it now. Never accept that stuff. It's But then again, those are the same people who told you that COVID was the Black Plague. So maybe these people aren't so smart. Well, I mean, I'm sure they could be smart if perhaps they had they could work for the proletariat, but unfortunately work for the bourgeoisie, which which is not okay. The bourgeoisie is not doing it's not doing okay. <laughs> No. Uh, finally, though, they do have a president who sums up their own decaying exactly. state. Exactly, yes. Biden is the perfect president for American capitalism at this stage. He's perfect. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we will, uh, we will, we will leave you for this, this your weekend edition. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you next time. Till next time. <laughs>